This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend, and we continue to celebrate the Swingin' A's, the team that won the World Series in 1972, 73, and 74. Only the A's and the New York Yankees have ever won three or more World Series in a row. Joining us today is Hall of Famer, Oakland's own Joe Morgan. We'll talk with Steve Garvey, Tommy John, and Buster Olney from ESPN with the top baseball insiders. But we start with the Hall of Famer, a two-time World Series champion, a 10-time All-Star, two-time NL MVP, five-time Gold Glove Award winner. You name it, he did it in the game. He's in the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. He's in the Houston Hall of Fame. And he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1990. Here is the great Joe Morgan. Joining us now is truly one of the greatest players who have ever played in Major League Baseball. A two-time World Series champion, a two-time MVP, a 10-time All-Star, a five-time Gold Glover, Oakland's own, the great Joe Morgan is with us. Joe, thank you for taking the time as we're celebrating one of the great World Series of all time in 1972. Well, we have some time now. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, the way the world is now, I'm spending a lot of time at home. You know, Joe, researching this and going into today, you know, the one thing that I realized is you had so many great players on both sides and so many, I mean, really other than than Pete Rose and Burt Campanaris, all of you guys were in your prime or in your young 20s. It was a very athletic and a very young World Series. Yes, it was. Uh, A lot of great players, like you say, on both sides. When I thought about doing this show, I started thinking about, all the great players on the A's side and all the great players on my side because I spent so much time with all those great guys on the Big Red Machine. So uh, you're right. It was just it was a great World Series. You know, Joe, you are one of the great number two hitters of all time. I've always thought like the perfect number two hitter. So what were you trying to accomplish in that role with those teams, batting behind Pete Rose? And in the game, we're going to hear game two of that World Series, Bobby Tolan behind you and then Johnny Bench and then Tony Perez behind him? Well, you have to remember, I always hit first or second when I played for Houston, and then I got traded to Cincinnati. And, of course, the hit behind the great Pete Rose was great for me because it opened up that hole between first and second. And if I could pull the ball in the hole on the ground, he could go to third easily. So my job was to get him over so that Johnny Bench and uh, Tony Perez and George Foster later on, those guys could drive him in. 
Now you think about this World Series, Joe. It's the early seventies. You know, you got the A's with all the hair and the mustache. It's the hairs <laughs> against the squares. Just, just take us through going into nineteen seventy-two, the World Series, and what it was. And, and you grew up in Oakland, taking on the Oakland A's. Well, it was. A, I was pulling for the A's, obviously. You know, to win and get to the World Series because I grew up like ten blocks from there, from the Coliseum, and I wanted to have my father mother, sisters, brothers, aunts and uncles, all to have a chance to see me play in the World Series. Uh, my father was a baseball player. My uncles, all of them played baseball. They barnstormed around Texas uh, and and so forth. Uh, you know, my when my dad was playing, it, you know, it wasn't possible for African-Americans to play in the major leagues. And they all played and they all loved the game. That's how I grew up loving the game. I became the bat boy and then I grew up you know, just loving the game and spent a lot of time with my father talking baseball and going to baseball games. We went to a lot of the Oakland Oaks games back in the day. You know, my father would take me to the games all the time. So, you know, I just wanted Oakland to win, you know, as bad as I wanted us to win, you know, our the National League so that we could play the A's. And then not coming home, you know, then I didn't realize I had to get tickets for everybody. So <laughs> all of it kind of jumped up on me. But I was just so happy to, you know, to play days. I wish I would have played better the first few games especially. But, you know, that's life. And I was just, just, just as they say, maybe that's the problem. I was happy to be there. Well, you know, if we, if we digress a little bit or fast forward, Ashley, you finished your career with the A's, Joe. Uh, yes. 12 years later in 1984, what was that like? And were your family members and, and friends able to watch you play a, a whole lot at the Coliseum that year? Yes. Um, I had planned on retiring at the end of 83. My last year, when I played with the Phillies in the World Series, we lost to Baltimore. And I had planned on retiring. And Roy Eisenhart was the uh, uh, president, I think, at the time. And we were good friends. We had been good friends for a while, and we played a lot of tennis together and whatever. And about halfway through the offseason, he started asking me to play, you know, come play for the A's. And I said, man, I'm, I'm retiring. You know, I'd made up my mind to retire. And Roy, being as smart as he is, uh, he, he asked me about five times, and I said no. So finally he went to my wife my, and my mother and dad. He went to the people, you know, he was smart enough to go there, and I couldn't tell them no. They all wanted me to play one more year so they would see me play my final year. So, um, And that's one of the best things I've ever done is to come home and play for the A's, you know. So uh, I decided to come and play, and, uh, you know, and I, and I played here my last year, and a lot of things happened positive for me that last year. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know how – much fun it was to be able to just get up in my house and drive down and play the game and go home. You know, it was really fun. The yeah. legend, the Hall of Famer, Joe Morgan, joins us here on A's Cast as we're getting ready for game two of the 1972 World Series. You know, the A's would go on after this to win two more. Only the Yankees and the A's have won at least three in a row World Series. What made it, what made the A's so tough? Well, the one thing I always remember about the A's is their pitching staff. They never made mistakes in pressure situations. You know, if they got runners in scoring position and so forth, they made good pitches. They never threw balls in the middle of the plate. They didn't hang breaking balls. And I thought all, you know, the first they got off to a great start with Gene Tennis, of course, winning the first two games for them in Cincinnati. 
And I just kept saying, well, they can't pitch like this the rest of the way because, you know, Perez, Foster, Bench, you know, if you start hanging pitchers or miss your spots, they were going to make you pay. Well, the Reds pitchers never missed their spots. I mean, they kept, they just made great pitches. And, you know, uh, they were just a great, that's the best pitching staff I've ever seen under pressure. I've always said that. Catfish and Kenny Holtzman and Blue Moon and Vida and Raleigh Fingers at the end of the game. You know, Joe, it was a tough series, seven-game series. You lose a one-run game in game seven. And then, of course, later you go on and, and you beat the Red Sox in 75. You sweep the Yankees in 76. So you won. The Big Red Machine wins two straight World Series. But after the 72 series ended, did you really think, because you had a great ball club, did you think we're going to get back to the World Series again? Oh, of course. You, you, I think every team that plays in the World Series and loses says next year will be our year. You know, everybody looks at it that way. And we did, too. And then in 73, we ran against another pitching staff, uh, you know, Tom Seaver, uh, uh, Holtzman, uh, Madlack, all those guys with the, with the uh, New York Mets. And so we ended up, you know, losing again. Um, I think the most underrated thing here for us going into that series was people overlooked our pitching staff. We had a good pitching staff as well. Uh, but, you know, we were the big red machine, so the offense got all the credit. Um, you know, the, the toughest thing is that first two games we lost in Cincinnati because, you know, Gary Nolan started off and, and Gene Tennis, you know, just went on a rampage, you know, and he hadn't even been the everyday catcher that year. But he, um, he, he got the A's off to a great start, and then we were playing uphill from that day on, that moment on. And you did mention the seventh game. We did get back to the seventh game. And, you know, I have, I guess, bad memories of the seventh game because, you know, we lost by one run. Uh, we were losing by two runs. I remember, I don't know if it was three to one. I can't remember numbers now. But uh, we lost by two runs. We were losing by two in the eighth inning. And I always remember Pete Rose let off with a base hit or he got on base. And I pulled the ball down into the corner, right field corner. And, you know, they were playing me around to left because, heck, I wasn't hitting well in the series. I wasn't doing a lot. So I, when I came out of the batter's box, I said, I'm getting to third base. I'll be the tie and run at third base with nobody out. And to this day, I'm, I'm thankful that I, I got lucky because when I rounded the second, I was headed for third. And when I got, I don't know, 25 feet from third base, Pete Rose was standing there. And if they would have hit the cutoff, man, they would have been able to get me at second base, and that would have been the, like the worst snafu you can make in 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 the, in the World Series. But Pete should have scored, and I should have gotten the third with no one out. And Pete scored on the next fly ball, and I couldn't move from second base. I ended up at second base for the rest of the inning. So uh, that that those things kind of jump mm -hmm. out at me because I could have been the just the worst base running mistake ever in the World Series. Yeah, the other thing though too. Looking back on plays like that, Joe, if Joe Rudy doesn't make that catch on Dennis Menke in the ninth inning of game two, yeah, the whole series might have turned around. Well, that's what I'm saying. The first two games in Cincinnati changed the whole thing because, like I say, we were playing uphill from there on, and I think the A's confidence level grew. Because let's face it, we were the big red machine. You know, We were supposed to beat the A's. We were favored to win that World Series. And I'm sure that they, you know, knew who we were. But, you know, they got 
got off and won those first two games, and heck, their confidence level, like I say, went sky high. Joe, on Wednesday, we honored Jackie Robinson. It was Jackie Robinson Day, and of course, 42 retired around baseball. And before this game, he gave a speech. It was a quick speech. It was Jackie Robinson's last public appearance as he would pass away nine days later. Do, do you recall Jackie being at the game? Of course. Hey, I grew up a Jackie Robinson fan. Jackie was my hero. He and Nellie Fox. Both of them played second base, of course. Um, Jackie, because he made it possible for me to make it to the major leagues, and Nellie Fox, because he played the game the way I wanted to play it. And, uh, yes, I was there in Cincinnati when Jackie walked out on the field. and I, You know, I wasn't going to miss anything for, as far as that was going to concern. And I watched him, and, you know, and, and then I guess the words still stand in my mind that will always be there. And he said, you know, uh, I'm happy, but I'll never be – ecstatic, I guess he used a different word, until I see an, a, a black manager managing from the from these dugouts. And I always remembered that because at that time, obviously, we didn't have any African-American uh, managers, and it was a long time before we had one after that. But I always remember that his last thoughts were of trying to make it better, you know, for the African-American players. You know, that's beautifully said. It was Frank Robinson, of course, later in the 70s who uh, became the first African-American manager. I guess on a personal note, Joe, I want to ask you about this back to 2017 at the Hall of Fame. Because growing up in Oakland like you did and listening to Bill King all those years, and it was so special for us to be at the ceremony and see you on the stage at Cooperstown presenting the Frick Award plaque to Kathleen, to Bill's daughter. I know how much that meant to you to be part of that ceremony and maybe you could share with our listeners what that meant to you and what Bill King meant to you. Well, it's interesting that I, you know, I got a chance to, you know, spend time with Bill King. Like everybody else, I just admired Bill's radio broadcasts, et cetera, et cetera, all those years, from basketball to football to baseball. And I got a chance to spend time with him. We went to dinner, his wife and my wife and I, well, he wasn't married at the time. We all went to dinners few times and I just got a chance to know him you know when people talk about things you know he was truly that man for all seasons I mean that's that's that was Bill King to me and I just admired you know him because uh being blunt with you he made me a basketball fan listening to him describe the game made me a NBA basketball fan so um yes it was a great honor I just felt honored you know, and I made sure I was the one to present the award, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. Um, I'm vice chairman of the board of the Hall of Fame, and I do have a little juice up there. A little, so <laughs> I wanted to present that award to Bill's you know, family. And uh, so, yes, that, that was a, quite an honor for me as well. Well, thanks well, for sharing that, Joe. Yeah, that's great, Joe. Joe, thank you so much. Uh, have good health and be safe. Get through these times. And truly, thank you for doing this. Uh, it, it, to hear your voice, we want to have familiar voices for people to hear because not only were you a great player, a great broadcaster, and thank you for your time. And uh, we're going to enjoy this wonderful World Series. Well, I'm going to watch my well, so uh, I'm not going to enjoy it like you will, but I'll, <laughs> I will definitely be watching. <laughs> um, you know, and, and then just so you'll know, my family and I are sheltered in place, so we're we're following the, you know, following our, our instructions. So, 
hopefully we'll you know be able to get back to playing baseball soon. Yeah. Take care, Joe. Thanks, All right, Joe. Guys, have a good one and be safe. From one legend to another. So Joe played against the A's in 1972. Our next guest played against him in 1974. He's a World Series champion, National League MVP in 1974, a 10-time All-Star, a two-time NLCS MVP, a four-time Gold Glove Award winner, a Roberto Clemente Award winner, and his number six is retired in San Diego, but he's known as a Dodger. Also played football at Michigan State, was a cornerback. Here is the first baseman, Steve Garvey. And on the line, just to let everybody know, is an all-time great. He was a 10-time All-Star. He was a National League MVP in 1974, World Series champion in 81, two-time NLCS MVP, four-time Gold Glove winner, a winner of the Roberto Clemente Award. The great Steve Garvey is with us. Steve, thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Uh, keep going. It sounds All right. Great. You were a terrific <laughs> football player. I always try and tell people you were oh, a terrific more, football more. player, Michigan State. Because I've, I've been talking about you and Reggie Jackson because I watched the yeah. 1978 World Series and you hit that triple at Yankee Stadium. And I'm like, yeah. people people don't remember you being this fast player, but you were a, I mean, come on, you're a cornerback in college. And then I think yeah. about Reggie Jackson, you know, People don't remember what a great athlete Reggie was. Also, a football player. Absolutely. You know, of course, he's a dear friend of mine. And I was just thinking before the number of World Series that we played against each other. Of course, starting in '74 and um, '77, '78, '81. You know, it was quite a a, uh, a kind of a golden sombrero, I guess, for the for the two of us. You know, we always had great respect for each other and. And I always tell people, of course, 77, he had that great final game with the three home runs. And then um, 81 was finally our year. And it's two out in the ninth inning at the Yankee Stadium. And I look up and it's 11.59. And, you know, it, you can sense that all those years uh, growing up as a kid, being the Yankees and Dodgers in the backyard with little, uh, with little grapefruits and wiffle balls and out of Florida, uh, that this was finally going to be it. And he, I remember he said to me, he says, Garb, it's your turn finally. He pats me on the behind. Next pitch goes to center and uh, the world champions. So we have had a lot of great memories. And we've been replaying the World Series, uh, not only here on A's cast, but also on NBC Sports California. We started with 72, the Hares versus the Squares, the Big Red Machine and the A's. And then 73 right. was the Mets. The You know, the Mets came out of nowhere. And then we've now gotten into 74, where you guys won 102 games. You guys were the favorites. And the A's end up winning this series in five games. And they only used five pitchers the entire series, which you'll never see that again. You don't always look at 74 when you talk about that that stretch of about 10 years there with the uh... – you know, with our, what I call the golden era, when our infield com came together in the middle of 73 and then going through the world championship in 81, even the next year, we, we just missed out. But um, because that was really, you know, we were just coming together, a group of young guys versus a group of mature, experienced players in the A's. And, um, you know, it, it was really a separation of experience versus 
kind of a, uh, a young and the restless type of situation. And then you start to get in and take, take a look at the, uh, the 74 series in itself. And if you look at it, you go, my, I can't believe that there was four, three to two games and one five to two and how, how so few runs separated what could have been a couple of swings here or there from uh, the Dodgers winning. It was really a great competitive World Series. Did you guys know before the series that Blue Moon Odom and Raleigh Fingers had gotten into a fight and Raleigh Fingers had to have stitches before the World Series? Did your clubhouse know about that? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Uh, you know, there was nothing new about uh, turmoil with the A's <laughs> and uh, Charlie Finley and everything that went uh, went with that that period of time. You know, which is arguably the greatest the greatest uh, period there for for Oakland. There's always something happening. It was uh, entertaining. It was uh, part of the the transition. I've always said from that era that went up to to the early '70s from the '50s. And then from the early 70s to 90 was the next era. And, uh, and of course, the great success that uh, the A's had, 72, 3, 4, et cetera. But it was, uh, it was good for baseball. You know, when I was growing up, uh, your, your guys' infield was the gold standard. You think of the Penguin, Ron Say, and Russell at short, and Davey Lopes at second base, and you at first base. You guys were together for so long. What was that bond like between all of you guys? Because you played a long time together. Well, it was eight and a half years, you know, and uh, arguably the greatest in field in history. Uh, when you when you look at, you know, obviously the length of time together and success we had and durability and individual performances and the uniqueness of, of four guys staying together for that long, number one, and give Val Campanis credit for, for seeing the potential when I was really the last piece on June 23rd of 73, I was a kind of a struggling third baseman with an old shoulder separation injury from Michigan State football and, uh, and had been struggling uh, to get into the lineup, but was, you know, really gaining success as a pinch hitter. And on that day, uh, I was leading the league in pinch hitting and we uh, were in the Reds at Dodger Stadium. And Freddie Norman had always given us trouble, you know, little lefty sinker slider change up. Uh, Walter Olson just hated it that he was, you know, when he was pitching against us because everybody was still trying to hit the ball out and he was just relying on the big sluggers to uh, swing away. And I did up pretty well against him. I'd go the other way. But that first game, I think it was a one nothing shutout and I got one of the two hits. And in between uh, the first and second game, we had about 35, 40 minutes and I was sitting there with a sandwich and and thinking to myself, well, at least at least I got a hit. And Walter Olson uh, walks by and he stops and he looks at me. He said, uh, hey, kid, you ever play first? I said, oh, sure. <laughs> and I played one game in Little League and one game in AAA. I had a bad hamstring and first base was close to the uh, first base dugout in, uh, in Spokane. And he said, well, uh, get a glove and play first tonight. He said they had another lefty thrown against us and lefties had given us trouble. And uh, so I borrowed a glove and got a bat boy to play catch and went out and had him throw me you know, a couple in, in the uh, grass to try to work on digging them out. And uh, we won that night, got a couple of hits, uh, some RBIs, uh, didn't trip over the bag. And I think it came off the bag for a tag and dug a backhander out of the, 
out of the dirt. And I'm sitting in my locker after the game. And you know, those days where everything comes together and feel pretty good about it. And I'm sitting there and I see out of the corner of my eye, Walt Alston walk into the uh, clubhouse and he comes down our row, Steve Rager's next to me, and he doesn't stop, but I hear, uh, you're in there tomorrow. And I look at Jaeger and I said, Jaeger, is he talking about you or me? And he said, Garvin, I think it's you. Uh, and it was. And I was in the next day and got some more hits, and we went on the road and started playing regularly. And that was the beginning of the infield that lasted up until 1982, and Davey Lopes' contract had run out in 81. So he was the first of the infield to leave. But um, that's why, arguably, I said the greatest infield in history because of the individuals, the team success, uh, the uniqueness of it. And, um, you know, we've always taken a lot of pride in it. Six times you had 200 hits or more. In this year, 1974, you're 25 years old. You win the MVP. You're a gold glover and you're an all-star. And what I don't think a lot of people in my audience may know this because it's crazy to think that you never played first base you would go on to set the record for most consecutive games played ever in the national league at a position you never played well it uh, it saved me from like running to the outfield all the time <laughs> no it's uh you know uh, amazing how uh, you know you just put your faith in god's hands and that's what i did and i went out and then i started you know, putting in 30, 30, 40 minutes every day at 2.30 in the afternoon, you know, learning a position. And it just came naturally. You know, I always said, uh, you know, I'm about 5'10". You know, you always think about first baseman being the big guys, big power guys. Most of them, you know, that's the position they play when they can't play anything else. But, you know, I had been a defensive back in, in college and had good eye and coordination and had this knack for digging balls out of the dirt. And, uh, it, um, you know, it was a rapid escalation in me adapting to first base. And eventually with the infield, we had this little motto, throw it high, you know, wave goodbye, throw it low, we're good to go. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, to end up winning four gold gloves after being a guy without a position and a wild arm, um, I've always told this story, and it's an example of working hard and, and uh, never giving up. And uh, when you when you that hard work, you know, and pep preparation uh, plus opportunity means success. So, um, you know, over the years, that that unique situation where Alston never said, "Hey, kid, can you play first? And if I hadn't said yes, if I had said no, you know, I might not be talking to you today. But uh, because. You know, I said yes, seized the moment, saw as an opportunity, carpe diem, as they say. Um, the next 15 and a half years were, uh, were, you know, a blessing. Me at first base and playing on great teams. Got an offer I could refuse, you know, after my contract was up in 82 and ended up in San Diego. And by the second year, you know, able to, to uh, help take that team to the World Series for the first time. So um, you just never know in life. You just keep working hard. And you've said it's still the biggest home run in Padre history off Lee Smith. Uh, I'll never forget that. And uh, as Don Drysdale said, as you were rounding the bases, and there will be a tomorrow. Uh, I want to get into Raleigh Fingers. I think for a lot of young A's fans, Raleigh Fingers, we're, we're, we're getting to see his true greatness. He is the MVP of the 1974 World Series. You'd go on to face him a, a lot more when he'd get into the National League 
Padres, but what was it like facing the greatness that is Raleigh Fingers? Well, you know, uh, obviously the end you know, justifies the means, and he's a, he's a great Hall of Famer who was uh, just consistently good during the time when, you know, relievers could possibly play, pitch two or three innings, you know, and I think the Goose Gossage a lot about that. You know, Raleigh would come in and kind of through three quarters, you know, a little drop down sometimes, had that tough slider. He threw one that I think he intentionally backed up. And then the good hard one to a right-hander, you know, which was uh, usually low and away, which I, I couldn't, never gave up on those too much. I kept thinking I could hit it, you know, the other way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was a pitcher's pitcher, so to speak. He uh, he thought the situation out, uh, executed, Two strikes, you know, that back, back then that was when guys went out to throw strikes, you know, and not uh, try to set you up with six or seven pitches. And uh, again, tremendous amount of respect for him. Again, somebody who's been a, a good friend over the years, but really was the heart and soul uh, of the A's during that time when uh, the closer was, uh, again, a, a, a guy who threw more innings. Yeah, and let's end on this. And you're talking about your, a guy you played against in World Series and then a guy you played with in San Diego, Goose Gossage. I, I think we're starting to realize, especially a lot of young baseball fans, are getting to see these guys and the amount of innings and appearances they had because a lot of people have grown up with just the closer pitches the ninth inning. What made Raleigh and what made Goose Gossage really two of the greats of all time was how much, Steve, they actually pitched and the bulk of their innings and appearances. Uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you look at the game through the ages or any sport, you look at uh, what becomes the, I like to call it the, uh, the game culture of that era. And uh, that was the culture of that era. You know, it was when, uh, when you got paid a, uh, as a starter for complete games and innings pitched, and uh, as a closer, you maybe had a setup guy, and then you took it from there. You know, you didn't see an average of four and a half pitchers a game, or in September, six or seven pitchers a game. So uh, that was their role. That was their job. They got paid for doing that. Um, you know, and I and, and I call it the golden era. You know, it was before the transition of the late '80s into the '90s, the change of the uh, economics of the game. Uh, an era of more specialization. And, um, you know, was, uh, I look back now and I was very honored to play. I, of course, I wish the economics of, uh, you know, the 70s and 80s were the same as the, uh, you know, 2010s and what's happening in the 20s. But, uh, you know, it's the old saying, you can only do the best you can during your time. And, and again, I think I gave it all I had in the field. And I'm able to look back now and, and think I was very blessed part of it yeah we've been noticing watching all these games whether it's all the great players on the Dodgers all the great player I mean Tom Seaver was one of the best and we got to see the big red machine and uh, it's just been a lot of fun looking back at 70s baseball it was a different game but it was actually a, a better game to watch and I grew up a big fan of yours I always appreciate your time thank you so much for coming on and talking about the 1974 World Series and be safe and we'll have you on again once we get this thing going absolutely i agree and best everybody and god bless be safe and uh, let's talk again when they're playing games from one dodger great to another tommy john 288 wins and a record 
187 no decisions. He should have won well over 300 games. Why he is not in the Hall of Fame, I have no idea. A four-time All-Star and the most famous sports surgery ever is named after him because he was the first one to have the procedure. Here is Tommy John. You know, we've been looking back at, at, at the A's greatness. If you look at 1972, 1973, and 1974, uh, you were on the 74 team. We're talking right now about the 74 World Series versus the Dodgers. The only problem is you got hurt at that point. You were having a great season. You were yeah, 13 yeah. and 3, and that's when you hurt your elbow. Yeah, I was uh, 13 and 3. Uh, when I hurt my elbow, and uh, my big um, my big claim to fame is I got to throw out the first ball to one of the playoff games, or maybe it was a World Series game, right-handed, and uh, Joe Ferguson came up, and, you know, I mean, I lobbed it up there right-handed. I, <laughs> he came up, and he says, well, that'll probably be the last time You'll throw a baseball on a baseball diamond, so I just want to give you the ball and wish you good luck and all that. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you very much. And then we went on about our way. But, um, you know, we had we had a good team that year with the Dodgers. We had a very good team, but the A's did too. The A's had a great team. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, 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 and the, the names in the series, we just – Recently talked to your former teammate, Steve Garvey. Uh, the names, I mean, you look at that, one of the greatest infields of all time with Russell yeah. and, and the Penguin, Ron Say, and Davey Lopes and Steve Garvey and your guys' pitching staff. And then you look at the Hall of Famers with the A's, whether you're talking Reggie, you're talking Catfish, Raleigh Fingers would end up being the World Series MVP. A lot of big-time names in this World Series. Well, there, there were, and... Um... It was a fun series, and it just shows you that in baseball, if you pitch well and you play defense, you got a chance to win a lot of ball games, and that's what the A's did. The A's pitched extremely well, and they defended the ball very well, and they had they had enough offense. Um, to sustain them. It was a good series. It, it really was. And the best team won. You know, when I think about your career and this is when you actually have the elbow injury and, you know, it's, it, it's the most famous surgery now in sports and it's named after you. It's pretty incredible. What was it like that decision to take that chance with Tommy John surgery and to have the surgery? What, what was going through your mind during that time? Well, I asked Dr. Joe because um, I had the utmost confidence in him. Um, if he would have told me, Tommy, uh, you've got a German Shepherd dog. Yeah, I do. Uh, go take a pile of her dog poops and bury it back at second base at Dodger Stadium and your elbow will be cured. I would have done it. No questions asked. I would have done it because I knew Dr. Job had my best interest. And um, we tried uh, rehabbing and all that, and it just couldn't do it. So 
now we're getting at the end of August and the first part of September. And I call him up one uh, Saturday. And I think we're in Atlanta. And I and uh, called him up. And uh, I, I said, we've got to do something. You know, th this is not working. Well, he said, um, we're, we're in Atlanta. Come in and see me tomorrow, um, Monday, at the office. So I flew home to L.A. and uh, went in to see him. And I, I said, you know, I, I want to pitch again. And I can't do it. He said, well, the surgery that I've got to do on you, he said, I've never done before on a pitcher. I put ligaments in and uh, tendons to replace ligaments and polio patients in their knees and ankles and all that, but I've never done it uh, in an elbow. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in space. And I said, Dr. Job, if you do your job, I will more than do my job because he had told me earlier that in orthopedic surgeries, uh, rehabilitation is probably 60 to 70% of the success of the surgery. So I said, uh, you know, I'll do mine, I, whatever it takes. If it takes a year, it'll be a year. If it takes two years, it'll be two years. But I'm, I want to come back and pitch again. I'm not done pitching. And, um, so we set about uh, when we're going to do it. Well, let's have the, this day, that day. So we decided on September the 24th or 25th. And uh, it was funny. My daughter, Tamara, was born on the 27th. So I had the surgery and I had to leave the hospital uh, two days later to go to the to be at the uh, birth of my first child. So, uh, you know, it was, he said, well, I don't want to let you out uh, it, back then. You know, now you have the surgery at nine o'clock in the morning and you're leaving the operation room at noon on your way back home. Back then you were in the hospital for a week because, you know, infection and all that. But um, it, it all worked out. And like I said, I trusted Dr. Job more than any person because he was not only working for the Dodgers, but he had my best interest at heart also. And that's why I knew that he was the perfect guy. How many pitchers talk to you, reach out to you, and thank you for what you did, which really changed modern medicine and change the game of baseball forever. Are you sitting down or standing I'm sitting, up? I'm sitting down. None. Zero. Really? Yeah. That's unbelievable. I know. I said, if I were having the surgery now, I, I would have my agent contact five or six of the pitchers that have had it and I want to pick their brain. I want a scouting report. That's how I pitched. I, you know, I mean, if I'm going into a playoff and we're playing a, an American League team or I'm with an American League team, we're playing a National League team, I'm, I want to get, what does this guy do? Does he like to bunt? Does he like to do this? 
Does he go to right field? What's, uh, what does he like to do? I would want to know, I would want to ask Tommy John, what, what can I expect? Well, you can do this, you know, and this is what I've told when I've gone out to do speaking engagements. Uh, you can't speed the healing process up. It just can't be done. So it may take, it may take player A two months longer than player B and may take player C a month shorter to get to where you can throw. And you can't speed it up. And this is what everybody wants. Well, uh, I remember um, Smoltz had it done. And he was going to be the first pitcher to come back in like 10 months and pitch. And Dale Murphy told me uh, at the All-Star game, and I said, Dale, he may come back and throw in 10 months, but he will not pitch in 10 months. And I think he tried to come back and hurt him re-injured his arm and had to shut it down and come back. And But it takes time for the body to heal. And then you go on about your business and uh, you pitch. Well, there's no question of that because you came back. You won 20 games in 1977. In 78, you won 17. 79, you won 21. 1980, you won 22. So you came back and you won so many games. You won 288 games in your career. And the last time we had you on the program, uh, you know, we talked about all the no decisions that you had. It's, 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 it's unbelievable how you are not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, somebody in there that does the voting, um, I, I know a lot of the sports writers, they, well, you weren't a dominating pitcher. What do you mean? I won. Yeah, but you didn't strike guys out. Oh, I didn't think it was the strikeout Hall of Fame. I thought it was the pitching Hall of Fame. You know, you get batters out. But I don't Somebody didn't like the way I pitch. And nowadays, um, geez, I, I, I think the last time uh, that I was up for a vote, I came in last or next to last. And I said, you got to be kidding me. Uh, this is... Uh, you know, uh, it, it just, it doesn't make sense. It it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't add up. I mean, cause you know, all those, uh, you know, how many no decisions did you have in your career? I, uh, 200 and some, I think I, I lead, I lead the major leagues in no decisions or I, I forget how many, but I have the most no decisions of anybody in uh, Major League Baseball. And to think that after you have the surgery, which is now named after you, that you pitch all the way till you were 46 years old, you know, really, you're, you're a treasure in Major League Baseball. I mean, the, the, what you did, the guts that you had to have this surgery and continue on has changed so many players' lives. It is unbelievable, and you should be – everybody should honor you for that because if it wasn't for you showing the courage, having the surgery, coming back, and being a 20-game winner multiple times, who knows where we would be in Major League Baseball? Well, the thing that I really like and I cherish is 
when I came back, I pitched 13 years after the operation. I, n I never missed a start in those 13 years. Now that's, that's unheard of. You come back from this surgery, yeah, my, my elbow was sore at times, but I still pitched, you know, and I pitched through the, through the pain, but um, I, I never missed a start. <clears throat> so whatever Dr. Job did, he did very well. Whatever I did rehabbing, I did it uh, very well. And with the rest of it is, is history. And hopefully it doesn't affect your golf game to this day. Oh, God, please. It's, um, I play golf like, well, Sandy Alderson may play golf better than me. That, that's how bad my golf game is. <laughs> well, hey, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for coming on. Be well. And once we get this uh, season going once again, we'd love to have you on. I, anytime uh, I'm available, I would love to talk baseball with you guys. It's fun. God bless you. Stay healthy. Tommy, that was awesome. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. We'll talk to you later. And we will end with one of the top columnists and podcasts in all of baseball. You've watched and read Buster Olney for all these years on ESPN and ESPN.com, and his podcast is second to none, Baseball Tonight. He's one of our favorites. Here is Buster Olney. Well, it is always great to have Buster Olney on. As we all know, he's one of the top columnists in the game, and his podcast is the very best in Major League Baseball, Baseball Tonight. Buster, thank you so much for coming on to talk a little baseball. Oh, it's always fun. Uh, you know, this time when, when we don't have uh, anything going on, it's fun to talk about baseball for the distraction. Yeah, I think that's like our number one goal here with A's Cast Live is to bring on familiar voices, and obviously you're one. And I think you kind of feel the same way with what you do with your podcast. It's just very important to have familiar voices because I really think it helps people who are cooped up in their home. A hundred percent. You know, once baseball gets shut down on the on the show that I do, uh, we've gone into pure storytelling mode. Uh, I don't think that. You know, the average fan wants day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, watch how the sausage is being made, updates on the latest conversation about, uh, you know, what a possible start date is, because you and I know the reality. They have no idea because, of course, they're completely at the mercy of the, you know, the guidelines that are being set down at the state and federal level and the progress about testing and all those things. And so we've, we've had a great time. You know, having folks like Sandy Alderson, you know, come on and tell stories, uh, you know, like Hall of Famers, uh, like like uh, Jim Palmer, Mike Messina, George Brett, come on and tell stories. I've really enjoyed the storytelling. Well, the Sandy Alderson, that was crazy. And in our world, we're like, wait a minute, you're just going to put Michael Jordan on the big league roster? And, and we, <laughs> I mean, you like the idea of it, but I think Michael Jordan was smart enough to know that if he would have gone straight to the big leagues, he would have been so embarrassed on a national level that that wouldn't have been a good idea. Well, it, it was interesting that, you know, Sandy, uh, he said that the only other time before he talked to us that he had mentioned it was in a fan fest event with the Mets within the context of, of the signing of Tim Tebow to play in the minor leagues. And he compared the two. 
And his explanation was, look, we didn't have anything going. Like at the time they were talking about putting Michael Jordan on the 25-man roster, the team wasn't good. It was going through transition. And, and it was interesting because Sandy, you know, being the former Marine and, uh, you know, very uh, stoic in, in a lot of cases, you know, for him to make the point, this is entertainment. And he knew that a team with Michael Jordan was going to draw more interest than a team that didn't have Michael Jordan. Uh, and the other thing, too, I would say that is that, I, you know, I, I taped a, 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 a podcast with Terry Francona about his time managing Michael Jordan in the minor leagues. That's going to run uh, as we get closer with the documentary to when they talk about Jordan playing baseball. And Terry thought that there was more to Michael as a baseball player than what people realized and that he was getting better. Uh, and so I don't know if Michael would have embarrassed himself in the way that, you know, I, I would have thought, you know, given, given Terry's opinion that he was improving as a player. He would have looked beautiful in those white cleats with the A's. <laughs> what, what a great picture that would be, right? <laughs> yeah, that would have been, that would have been awesome. And speaking of, you know, celebrating history. So we started with uh, on NBC sports, California here in the Bay area, we started rerunning games from the World Series in 1972. We had Joe Morgan on. Then when 1973, now we're on to 1974. Steve Garvey's on with us today. And we've had, you know, Raleigh Fingers. And we've had Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando and Vita Blue. Just reliving this great time in A's baseball. And, of course, you grew up a Dodger fan. You remember the 1974 World Series. Yeah, and in 73, I was rooting like crazy for the New York Mets, who, of course, lost in seven games to Oakland. So you're basically ripping my heart out. You know, <laughs> me at eight, nine, ten years old, uh, I was rooting hard against those Oakland teams. Uh, you know, the, the people, uh, you know, always remember Bill Buckner for the ball going between his legs in the 86 World Series. Me as a young Dodger fan, I remember him getting thrown out at third base after a perfect relay by the A's in a crucial moment to, for the first out in an inning. Um, you know, I, the Dodgers, of course, had a couple of nice moments. Mike Marshall picking off Herb Washington. Uh, you had uh, Joe Ferguson making an incredible throw to get Sal Bando out. But, man, those Oakland teams were so good. And it must be fun for you as, uh, you know, someone uh, with the A's to go back and watch those because, wow, those teams were dominant. And you talk about talent. Well, and how dysfunctional they were to go along with it. I mean, we had Ray Fossey on yesterday and also <laughs> Sal Bando. So Sal Bando tells the story that the clubhouse guy, right before the start of the series, goes, hey, I've heard a lot about you guys and all the fight and everything. And Sal goes, ah, that's so overblown. And Sal says, within like a minute, Blue Moon Odom and Raleigh Fingers are fighting each other before game one, and Raleigh has to get <laughs> stitches. You think that Charlie Finley's running the team from Chicago. He doesn't get to see the team. Everything's by phone. They're fighting each other. They're winning. It was just a crazy – it's the 70s. What a crazy time for such a great team. But it was just – it was greatness with dysfunction, and it's fascinating. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Johnny Bench uh, recently, and we talked about, okay, who are the greatest teams of all time? And Johnny, what Johnny would commit to was he feels like the 75, 76 Reds, big red machine are, are one of the two greatest teams of all time. 
uh, and I he didn't specify, but I suspect he was talking about the 2070 Yankees is the other. I got to say that uh, with all due respect to Johnny, if I had to choose between those A's teams, uh, 72 to 74, and the big red machine, I would take those A's teams. Uh, well, such, he- such, a, such an unbelievable array of, of talents and skills, you know, speed and Billy North and Burt Campanaris, and what a great bullpen. And the de- you know the incredible uh, uh, ability of that starting rotation with Catfish Hunter and Ken Holtzman and Vita Blue, it was remarkable. Yeah, we you, you can make the case if Charlie Finley doesn't break up the team because they were all still in their prime, there may never ever have been a big red machine. Well, and, and it's very interesting, uh, you know, just about that team. I said they kind of broke my heart. I actually, when I was 11 years old, I got a chance through my uncle to attend game one of the 75 playoffs between the Red Sox and Oakland. And I got to sit next to Pee Wee Reese during that game, uh, who worked for Louisville Sluggers that time. And I remember that distinct feeling at age 11, and I guess probably I'd been reading Peter Gammons' column in the Boston Globe, that there was a sense that that team in 75, that that was, we were beginning to see, we were seeing the beginning of the end, uh, you know, with the decision in Catfish Hunter's case, and he became a free agent, and all the you know the dysfunction with Charlie Finley and that that need to sell and all. Of course, never forget that day waking up and seeing those pictures of Raleigh Fingers and Joe Rudy in Red Sox uh, uniforms because they had been sold to that team. Man, that was a crazy time. Now that we think back on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun to relive it. You know, I've heard a lot of different things about how we get this thing going again, whether it's Arizona, Florida, it's Arizona. I, I've been told about 10 teams in Arizona, 10 teams in Texas, 10 teams in Florida. Just what have you been hearing? Because we know every sport is trying to think about how to reopen. Yep. Well, Here's the thing. I know they're talking about a lot of different scenarios, but I've had general managers, uh, you know, club officials say to me, private agents say to me privately, they have no idea what's going to happen. They have to, on a daily basis, have these conversations because there will be a day when they'll get go time. Uh, and it'll, they'll have to be prepared for that. But, for example, uh, you know, we've read recently about Florida being a possible place. Well, today there's news that the coronavirus cases in Florida have suddenly spiked and raising concerns about whether or not, uh, you know, the, the move to reopen their economy may be contributing to that. These are all things that, uh, you know, baseball, my comparison I've been making is that baseball is like a rowboat in a hurricane and they're just completely at the, at the mercy of forces around them. Um, and so they're talking and they're various, you know, th- things that they're considering. There was a report out from Jeff Wilson the other day about how, you know, they could play games in Texas, which makes some sense. This Arizona scenario makes some sense. But then you also read, when you read the hard news, that there's an expectation that the coronavirus cases are going to spike in Arizona in the month of May. So we just have to, you know, wait and see. And when they finally get a, a handle uh, on uh, on the testing and, and how to monitor. And, you know, Dr. Fauci came out or, you know, again and, and talked about, Yes, it's feasible to have baseball and everybody live in a bubble. I think that's nice theory. Chris, you've been around young men in their early and mid-20s. The idea that you're going to lock down 
1,500, 2,000 people in a bubble with no one leaving, I, I, I wonder. And I know from talking with team executives, they also wonder about, um, you know, what about coaches who are older and, and have pre-existing conditions and greater vulnerability? There's just so many things that they have to think through. Yeah, and then you got the labor negotiations. What are you hearing between the owners and the players' union, how they feel about it? That it's not good. Uh, and, in fact, as we sit here today, I think, the, you know, the currently toxic relationship between uh, the, the baseball union and Major League Baseball and the effort to work out what the compensation would look like may be a greater threat to baseball this year than the coronavirus. Um, because the bottom line is, is that in order for baseball to restart, the two sides have to agree on, you know, what the, the compensation is going to be for the players. Uh, you know, the, we've seen in recent days a statement put out by Tony Clark, the head of player association, uh, you know, comments made by Scott Boris, the powerful agent, about, you know, feeling, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, basically arguing that the terms are on, the paper and they need to abide by the terms that they've agreed to in the past. And I know from baseball side, their feeling is, look, our revenue has been completely cut. I'm going to write a column this weekend comparing where baseball is to that movie Apollo 13, where, you know what, the, the spaceship is damaged, it's floating in space. And really what the focus should be on a collaboration, imagination, and trying to land safely and survive. And instead, it feels like we got two of the astronauts arguing over who's going to sit in the middle seat. And that is a huge problem. That is a major problem. And you want to talk about not having public support? Wow. I mean, can you imagine if if Scott Boris or any players start talking about money and contracts and what they should what they should be guaranteed when we have, what, 22 million Americans unemployed right now? That's going to be a really tough sell for the players. I had an agent say to me the other day, you know, how quickly we've forgotten about what happened in 95 when the players went on strike. And look, in that case, I thought the players were completely in the right in terms of the arguments that were being uh, discussed. Um, and the players, there was enormous backlash at a time when the nation's economy was okay. Well, now uh, everything you just laid out is exactly right. If, they wind up not playing baseball because of a disagreement over what compensation is going to be with people out of work, with companies going under, with businesses going under when potentially they could have billions of dollars uh, in terms of revenue. There are not going to be a lot of people feeling sorry for them. And I do think the backlash, not only for the players when they whenever they would come back, but also for the industry. I think a lot of people would be so upset that they would basically swear them off, which is why I think they they really got to rethink this thing and make sure that they agree, look, no matter what happens, no matter what our disagreements are, we are going to agree that we're going to get back to work as soon as we can. Let's end on this. I've been asking everybody, you know, since we have so much time on our hands, everybody's doing a deep dive into something, whether it's a book, a TV series, a movie. What's Buster only been doing in his spare time? My summer, my last stand against my 15-year-old son on the basketball court. <laughs> We've been playing a lot of basketball. He's now taller than I am. Uh, he's beginning to block my shot. But I got old man moves. I got about 30 pounds on him. And I'm hanging in there. 
but I feel like it's like my last stand, and it's a you know it's a daily uh, you know showdown at high noon. Uh, whenever we play basketball these days, <laughs> I love it. You're like Charles Barkley. You got to use that with exactly. And you know, he's got all the moves. He's got the height and a lot of things he does better than me, but I got the old man moves. Nice. I've been right. I, I, I've, I've said this on the show. I haven't ridden my bike this much since I was like 12 years old. <laughs> Buster, always a pleasure. Hey, and thank you for what you do because whether I'm speaking for Cody, my producer, me, we listen to your podcast, and it's just nice to, to to hear it. And as you said, the 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 stars that you bring on and the stories that are being told help us get through the day. So thank you for what you're doing, and we always appreciate you coming on the show. You guys too. I'm jealous. Those conversations about those Oakland A's teams, those are fun. You're the best. Take care, Buster. Be safe. Okay, guys. You too. Take care. See ya. It's been a lot of fun celebrating these great A's teams from the 70s. We thank Joe Morgan, Steve Garvey, Tommy John, and Buster Olney. Now back to A's cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.